Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, um, in which we ask if paying attention to the present is actually mindfulness. To discuss that, I'm joined by Frank Jude Boccio, um, who's the author of Mindfulness Yoga and uh, who's been practicing for almost 50 years. Um, Frank Jude was a, a long-time student of Thich Nhat Hanh, um, and we explore why he left to find another Zen teacher. Um, but mainly we talk about yoga through the prism of mindfulness, uh, reflecting on what might be important when reframing ideas for the 21st century, which is one of the focuses of this podcast. Um, along the way, we also touch on another one, uh, the value of critical thinking, um, and also whether seeking liberation is a helpful objective. Um, now, you can find out more about the podcast um, and donate to sustain it, all donations gratefully received, at uh, ancientfutures.substack.com. Um, or you can help others discover it by leaving a rating on Apple or Spotify or subscribing to us via YouTube. Um, for now, though, let's get started with Frank Jude Boccio. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Right. Welcome, <laughs> Frank Jude. Lovely to be talking to you. My pleasure. It's really great after uh, being exposed to you through Scott Johnson's podcast, I think Jay Brown's, and then uh, Facebook. It's like, okay, so it's a real person here. Yeah, I'm having a lot of Facebook turning into real conversations experiences at the moment, and it, it's really nice. Um, you know, I often found a lot of benefit through Facebook because um, I tried to avoid, you know, what I used to do on blogs 10 years earlier, which was to have political arguments, and instead trying to learn from what people were posting. And there are still a few people out there, you know, like yourself, saying sensible and intelligent informed things in long threads that most people yeah. skip over looking for the next picture and yeah so i reached out and said, amongst like, us who were like you know follow this thread down you know it's funny though because i don't know if you're if you remember or you were part of it but like there was a point where in time where i must was going to just back out because like it, it got so hateful in these mm. threats you know um, amongst these wonderful yoga people and but now i'm seeing a, a depth and again you know like i think you're the second person in the last few months through facebook that we've come to this uh, barry Risman, i was facebook friends but never talked to her or anything else and then it was in a thread that she posted something and was like oh i want to 
go deeper, you know? So it's a it's proving itself despite its negative negative aspects really been uh, a really great way of uh, creating relationships and connection i think we just make the most of the technology that we have i mean in the end it's trying to make the most out of us but um you know <laughs> we can resist that as much as much possible and uh, t t take the few scraps of, of good science that are on offer then it's it's worth engaging with still and I guess in some ways that's a, you know, almost a metaphor for what it is I'd really like to talk about this uh, you know, attempt to take from you know, long standing living wisdom traditions something for the modern world and uh you know in the yoga world there's, there's a lot of that happens without people thinking about it they have an idea of what they think yoga philosophy is that often has very little to do with with ancient yoga texts and uh, when people do study those texts <laughs> they can be quite horrified to, to see what's in there um oh, yeah. and at the same time you know if we were to follow those texts to the letter, we wouldn't be living in the modern world. I mean, they almost are, you know, some of the extreme yoga cases, you know, arguments for leaving the world behind. So yeah. if we're going to try and update tradition, which is what the tradition has consistently done for itself, regardless, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to how we might do that. I'm going to use a word here that might push a button mindfully and start <laughs> thinking, you know, what, what are we bringing to the table? What's our agenda here? You know, what are we consciously putting aside and why? And how, how do we do that in a way that preserves some integrity and connection to the tradition? And I guess the main reason I, why I'm asking you all this is you wrote a book with the title <laughs> Mindfulness Yoga. So you brought you know, two traditions together, which is a con conscious exercise in, you know, creativity in that way. So I wonder what you think the sort of pros of that sort of approach are and what the potential cons might be as well. Yeah, well, um, I, first of all, I would say like the very act of asking these questions is really important. And I think a lot of people haven't done that. They've, I have, a, I have a podcast too. And one of the episodes, the image I used is this, you know, woman looking into a mirror. And it's like, are we just doing that? Like if we're just wanting to see our our beliefs, our assumptions reflected back, then we're not really engaging with the tradition. If we <clears throat> engage with the tradition, then we're putting ourselves in a position of being willing, uh, willingly challenged. Now, we don't have to accept everything, and I certainly haven't, you know, in my 47 years of practice, but you, I, I think it's really important that we face the tradition as it's presented and then say, oh, well, do I really agree with this? Rather than just kind of whitewash it or ignore it completely as what I see a lot of people having done, you know? Um, in my case, um, I really, I had been practicing Zen for many years and then um, I started studying with Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm -hmm. And what I think a lot of people don't understand is in Vietnam, way back in its history, it was two different kingdoms, one of which was in the cultural orbit of China and one was in the cultural orbit of India. And so uniquely, it received a dual transmission of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, from China, it received the Mahayana philosophical understandings and from India via Sri Lanka and, and Southeast Asia and all that, it received what we now refer to as Theravada, right? Mm -hmm. More Ali Buddhism. And so 
although Thich Nhat Hanh was a Zen teacher, he taught a retreat on the Satipatthana, which is a Pali practice and sutta. You would never hear if you just only went to Japanese or Korean Zen centers. And um, it was transformative for me because that early Buddhism tends to be more psychological, more pragmatic and practical, right? But also more world denying, more ascetic, right? So I like the pragmatic, practical thing, the practice, right? Um, but I'm not a world denier. I want to actually value this world. I want to bring value to it. I'm a naturalist philosophically, right? And interestingly, only in the last 10 years or so, a religious naturalist movement has really taken root. Um, and so I'm part of that, but I kind of was already doing it, you know, kind of on my own. And so I, I brought the practical, pragmatic, more psychologically oriented type of practice to what I refer to as a Mahayana heart. Um, what I reject in Mahayana Buddhism is that it made this human being that we refer to as the Buddha into a cosmic principle. Mm. And I reject that for a lot of reasons, one of which is like, you know, if you make him that, then how do I relate to that? I'm not a universal cosmic principle. But if you keep him a man, a human, who had this transformative experience and insight, well, maybe then I can do that too, right? So like, I really reject the, um, the transcendent aspects of Mahayana Buddhism, but I really respect its uh, aestheticism, not ascetic, but like, you know, in Zen, look at Zen arts, from flower arrangement to theater and uh, drumming and, and all that. So like, I find I've got the more this worldly um possibilities of that from the mahayana and and evaluation of human relationship and emotion with the more down-to-earth practices from theravada and so mindfulness yoga when i first was invited to write the book they wanted to call it mindful yoga and i was like no because when you say mindful yoga you're using this word as an adjective, right? And I, this is a, a practice. It is the practice of satipatthana. Just happens to be done through the asanas that come out of hatha yoga. And that was my integration. So really interesting that you mentioned that sutta, satipatthana. Um, how would you translate that into, into modern English? Well, sati is the word that we translate as mindfulness, mm. right? Um, but I think it's also really important to, to remember, so to speak, <laughs> related to the word for remembering, yeah. sarata, right? And um, so the second part of Satipatthana is variously translated. Um, and even in my book, I used the establishments of mindfulness. You often find the, the, the establishments or the foundations of mindfulness. And I don't think that's wrong, but it tends to create the sense in someone who hears it 
that, all right, for instance, the first Satipatthana is the body. Right? So if you think of the body as the foundation of mindfulness, then you've got this body and you're building mindfulness, right? Like a foundation, like a building. But in fact, it's we're bringing mindfulness to the experience of the body. Mm. So in the last year or two, I've been, I've been taken to calling them the four domains of mindfulness, the four areas that we bring mindfulness to. Because the Buddha did say mindfulness was one of the five faculties. We already have this as a faculty. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need setting up, it, it needs right. tuning into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what are the other three then? We've got the body. The second one is feelings. Um, Vedana, but it's not emotions. We, in English, we use feelings kind of indiscriminately, you know, like that song feelings, but they're really talking about emotions. Now um, people also use it for thinking, you know, I feel like means I think. Oh, yeah, well, that's pretty, from my perspective, sloppy thinking. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, but what the, the Buddha, what the tradition means in the Vedana, the second domain, when it talks about feelings is literally the felt sense of experience. Mm. Um, and the way I, I teach it is it's, it's both the sensation and the hedonic or the felt tone. So uh, if I stroke my face with my fingers, I've got a sensation, right, of pressure, of coolness. My fingers happen to be cool right now. Uh, softness because I shaved this morning. These are the sensations. And quite frankly, it's neutral to pleasurable, right? So all of that together makes up the feeling. And why it's so important to bring mindfulness to feelings is we tend to reify them, right? So this is pleasant. Mm. Well, if you close your eyes and open your eyes and it's the hand of your lover, it's going to be really pleasant. But if you close your eyes, you feel that sensation. It's the same sensation. You open your eyes and it's the hand of a corpse. Maybe not so pleasant, right? So the actual experience of that feeling is dependently originated. It is conditioned by other factors, right? Um, on a really hot day, if someone takes a cold glass of ice, iced tea and places it against their cheek, it feels good. But if it's like zero degrees Celsius and you do that, you want to kick them if they do that to you, right? Thanks so face. <laughs> it's the same feeling, but the experience is what's conditioned, right? So I think it's one of the most valuable practices, Vedana Sati. The third domain is mental formations or the mind, right? And this would include emotions, uh, perceptions, right? Ultimately, though, and this is where it gets really trippy for some people, um, if you go deep enough, you realize everything up to now has been a mental formation too. The experience of feelings, well, that's a mental formation, right? You stub your toe, if that nerve impulse doesn't get to your brain and your mind, it's, you're not perceiving it at all, right? Um, so everything, even your body as a self-contained unit is a mental formation, right? This is where I think modern science helps us to understand this because it's like it literally, if you disinhibit a particular part of the, I think it's the occipital lobe, you'll have an out-of-body experience. You experience your body as a mental formation. So that's the third domain. And then the fourth one is Dharma. And I don't translate it anymore. I used to translate it. You often see it's like 
objects of mind or something like that but I think that just confuses qualities just... I think we get it in this book uh, which is uh, the scholar Rupert Gethin um but yeah sort of components what, what is... of he says qualities qualities as qualities right so what he's getting at there is um when we're observing when in, at the level of the fourth domain we're actually looking at dharmic categories um, in Analayo's really brilliant book on the Satipatthana, in one paragraph, he uses the word Dhamma, Dhamma, the Pali form, yeah. four times to show four different ways, right? And he said, so when, you, when you're observing the categories, the Dhammas, right, taught by the Buddha's Dharma, Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha, um, we see the dharma the reality you know and so he's like using all the, the same word for all of that mm -hmm. what i get in, in terms of practice the way i present it is that in in a way when we're observing the first domain we are bringing mindfulness to the body and then that that involves the breath um it involves the whole physical body its various postures however the body is deposed as, as the translation has um well if I could just jump in there for a moment, that, that is the only early text that speaks about these kind of things. So if a modern yoga practitioner goes looking in anything, you know, pretty much before the 20th century, they do not find a description of paying attention to the body's physical position in space. Uh, oh. Whereas Satipatthana Sutta, you know, reporting on what was said two and a half thousand years ago, goes exactly through that process, even, you know, to the point of mindfully brushing your teeth could be, you know, a logical extrapolation from what it's saying. Yes, actually, that's one of the, the first micro practices I refer to them as micro practices that I encourage my students to do brushing your teeth. Um, the how it's interesting because in some ways, the very things that other yogis at the time would have seen as obstacles for liberation, the vrittis, like the, the mental activity would be an obstacle for Patanjali, the Buddha says, let's pay attention to them. Like, what is the true nature of these thoughts? Where do they come from? How, and then how do they relate to what I'm feeling in my body, what I'm perceiving through my senses? So it's like, when we're observing the body, yes, the, the, the postures, right? Uh, standing, he says, standing, sitting, lying down, turning to the side, reaching up. When I read that, I was like, okay, you know, like, like this is mind blowing. That's what that was my genesis of mindfulness yoga for me, right. But then activities and how they all relate to each other. But the point is, is that in the previous domains or foundations, if you want to continue calling them, we are bringing our minds to a specific thing, body, or feelings or mind. But in the fourth domain, it's really choiceless awareness. We're just sitting and basically categorizing or analyzing the experience. So if we're sitting and we're experiencing joy, we go, oh, joy, one of the five, you know, not technically, literally this, but what it's what you're after the fact, basically, it's like, this is joy, uh, one of the seven factors of awakening. On the other hand, if you're sitting and all of a sudden you realize you're craving something, then oh, first hindrance. So you're basically using your experience to see the dharmic categories of the Buddha. And he starts with the hindrances and goes all the way up to the four 
realities of the noble or the four noble truths, which I think is really interesting because in literate culture, if you open up any book on the Buddha after the first chapter that might talk about his life a little bit, it's like the four noble truths, you know, and it's like, but that would, that comes at the end. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.